1: Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is Wednesday, November 9th, 2022. I am Weston Akamura, Real Vision's Global Markets Editor, and I am joined today by the great Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro. How are we doing, man? I'm good, man. How are you, buddy? How are you? It's good to see you. Well, turmoil in crypto. <laughs> it's- it looks like that turmoil in crypto every time I come on. <laughs> T- turmoil in crypto as we speak, with, with headlines breaking right now, we have midterm elections to cover, and we have us cPI um, on the horizon. And so we're just we're gonna to try to figure out what matters for uh, markets writ large. Um, and I don't think that we can do that in a half an hour, but well, let's give it a shot, shall we? Yeah, absolutely. that's our job, buddy. Yeah, so right now, um, you know, as we speak, there are headlines breaking that Binance is currently walking away from uh, the deal with FTX. Um, this is happening while Gary Gensler is also speaking. This is all breaking headlines, and I'm not going to follow them while I'm on. I are talking to Darius with other matters going on as well. But that is uh, clearly moving markets um, to the downside. Uh, as a matter of fact, we do have a clip uh, from a crypto daily briefing from earlier today. Um, And so let's just uh, play that because it's very relevant to uh, what I want to get into first.
3: And I could tell you what brokerage firms work on is trust. We put together things like capital rules and segregated assets and haircuts for risky things. But all that's to say you have to trust me personally to run this firm. And when that trust is gone, all the financials in the world don't matter. Everybody wants to get away from you because their money is at risk. And what SPF didn't realize is that he wasn't trusted. So at the first sign of trouble, everybody ran from him. And, and, you know, this is Dick Fold at Lehman Brothers. This is John Corzine at FF Global in 2011. We've seen this movie over and over again. And when they start to run and the outflows start, the bank run starts, It's very, very hard to stop it. There's only one way to stop it. You need a larger entity that has more trust to come in and take over. In the TradFi world, that is a central bank with a printing press or a government with taxing authorities and armies to come in and basically say, now we're in charge, everybody calm down.
1: Okay, and so that was Mr. Jim Bianco, um, who was talking uh, to uh, the Crypto Daily briefing, and uh, from this uh, from earlier today. Make sure that you uh, watch it live every day at 12 p.m. Uh, Eastern. Um, but yeah, very relevant, obviously. And Darius, I know you have some thoughts on that as well, uh, regarding just the the not this specific uh, incidents right now with with crypto, but. Kind of how it relates to um, and previous incidents of this happening in in tradfi or traditional uh, markets and traditional fi- financial institutions. Do you want to collaborate? Yeah, elaborate? Uh, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Weston, man. I appreciate you. So um, you know, every morning we put out a video called Our Macro Minute where we're just sort of going through – you know, kind of what's most topical through the lens of, you know, kind of the most relevant economic data that's released across the globe for the last 24 hours. And then we go through sort of, you know, kind of the different signals that we are uh, highlighted. They're jumping off the screen from my perspective of my Longboat dashboard, but every once in a while, Uh, I'll get on a roll and start ranting about something that's very topical in markets, and and I think my rant this morning was actually very um very relevant to the news that's breaking the tape right now, uh, which is this uh, CZ move to back out of this uh, of this FTX of this deal, Um, you know, not understanding the full kind of um area of uh, the full breadth of exposure with respect to Alameda. Uh, And what we were talking about was, you know, there's so many parallels to 2006 and 2007 uh, ahead of the global financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. Uh, uh, in the, today's crypto ecosystem that were sort of very, very um, highly correlated or, you know, they kind of rhyme with what we saw back then. I mean, we saw, you know, sort of uh, the trouble with Bear Stearns and it having to get acquired. Uh, you know, I, I want to say, uh, th- don't I'm blanking on this, but I want to say JP Morgan acquired Bear Stearns. And then we had the tr- trouble with, uh, with Country Ride and it having to get acquired by uh, Bank of America. And, and, and ultimately, you know, those firms, JP Morgan and Bank of America, are still to this day Dealing with the, the 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 poor judgment associated with acquiring that that credit risk um, too soon, and the reason I say the words too soon, it's very important because in 2006 and 2007 we were starting to figure out that there were cracks brewing in the system, particularly in the housing market, and how that may start to ripple across the broader economy. You know, certain investors really saw that coming and really had a great view on that. Um, they're not certain, but a small number of investors. But most investors sort of, you know, thought things would be ring fenced, if you will. Um, even our our chairman uh, Bernanke, the former Fed chair, uh, in fact said, you know, I believe he used the exact word ring fence when he thought about uh, some of these uh, some of these issues. Uh, but the reality was, they were too soon. They bought the dip too soon in these particular assets, these troubled, these, these troubled assets, not fully understanding the counterparty risk associated with it um, in the sense that you could see some real bank runs um, this, and not really understanding the credit risk associated with the broader business cycle. We are nowhere near recession right now. Uh, if you look at uh, you know sort of uh, some of the different drivers of consumer spending of the broader economy, whether it be private sector, labor income – as compounding at 6.6% on a three-month annualized rate of change basis. Uh, as most recently as October, you got uh BEA data confirming that if you look at the employee compensation compounding at 6.5% on a three-month annualized basis, both of those numbers are 50% uh, a pro of their pre-COVID trends in terms of the growth rate of the income consumers are receiving from the labor market. So we're still very far away from a below trend and even recessionary-like state in the economy. And so the reality is if you're trying to allocate capital to what you perceive to be distressed entities at this particular phase of the game, you have no idea the full range of distress that could come upon those entities in an actual recession. Again, this is an economy that is still growing, technically speaking, above trend when you look at it on a nominal and real GDP basis. That won't last if you look forward three to four quarters. But again, for now, it's, it's too soon. And I think CZ is doing the smart move, which is what we were talking about earlier in the macro minute he's making the smart decision by sort of backing away and trying to fully assess, you know, the the all the range of pro- the probable outcomes associated here because there's no way he understands that without a recession on the table. Yeah,
1: um very good point and and so um, Darius, I want to you know break down uh, CPI. That's you know that we're on the eve of. Uh, can we, can we later? Before, yeah, before yeah. we move on to CPI, can we uh, so throw yeah, uh, Brian? Yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah,
0: <laughs> let's throw those charts of net liquidity to kind of talk about what's happening in the crypto ecosystem through the lens of, of broader global macro. So, uh, Brian, if you thought that first chart, net liquidity, uh, where we show um, you know a net liquidity versus uh, versus the S and P five hundred, versus uh, Bitcoin and versus Ethereum. You know, and the the title of the slide reads, and it's very appropriate, you know, Bitcoin is leading net liquidity lower, just like it led net liquidity lower in the fourth quarter of 2021 when we sold all of our crypto exposure. um, And and it just like it led to the upside in 4Q20. Um, In fact, in October of 2020 is the first time I ever bought Bitcoin. So, um, you know, Bitcoin as an asset class has been leading these violent swings in net liquidity. And this is something we've been talking about on the program all year which is things that are further away from the center of the financial system. You know, I would consider, you know, the treasuries in the center of the financial system. You brought it out to that, the U.S. investment-grade debt, you know, U.S. investment-grade corporate equities. You know, the further you get across uh, from the center of the financial system, the further you go out on the risk spectrum, the more imp swings and shifts in net liquidity tend to have these massive uh, uh, moves. And so what's what's very clear uh, about this chart is that, hey, look, Bitcoin is – well, trading well below what its fair value estimate would be currently in net liquidity. But then, when you go back and look at these uh, other historical intervals, particularly fourth quarters last year on to the downside, fourth quarter of twenty twenty to the upside, you can see that Bitcoin has a penchant for 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 uh, for front running these net liquidity fundamentals, and and that makes a lot of sense in the context of it doesn't take a lot of flow at the further out on the risk spectrum to get price action to move in a material manner. And I think that's exactly what's happening in crypto on on top on top of what's happening. Uh, in terms of this uh, FTX Alameda uh, Binance issue. And the second thing I'd say on net liquidity would be the second chart, uh, Brian, if you throw up that uh, the other chart, drivers of net liquidity. Um, so everyone's got their own way of thinking about net liquidity. I think ours has become, you know, one of the more popular ones across global Wall Street, and we're very grateful for that uh, over the past couple of 18 months or whatever. And our our model uh, takes the, tr- uh, the, the, Fed's, uh, the, the assets on the Fed's balance sheet, and then we retract, subtract uh, the balances from the treasury's general account uh, and we subtract the balances from the reverse repo facility account and we're left with the net liquidity function in terms of you know kind of uh you know the, the what our estimate is is sort of the total amount of capital the base layer of capital that allows hedge funds et cetera to lever up and and, and allocate to risk or vice versa to delever um and so some of these um you know, metrics we know if you look at the blue line in this net liquidity chart um that's the fed's balance sheet the total assets on the fed's balance sheet we know that's going to uh, at least target it to go down. At about 95 billion a month over the next, you know, it could be indefinite, but certainly over the next few months here in Q4. Um, but the thing that's most damaging to something like Bitcoin and most damaging and, and really hampering investors' ability to take risk, to lever up and buy the dip in mass and then really send this thing back to the moon is the dynamics we're seeing associated with the Treasury General Account. We got the Q4 quarterly refunding announcement out of the Treasury last Wednesday ahead of the uh, – or Monday and Wednesday ahead of the FOMC meeting. And the most important information that we extracted from that, that, that report and from that press conference are twofold. One, there's going to be no Treasury buyback at least until uh, Q1, Q2 of next year, at least until February, March of next year. But secondarily, and more importantly, I would argue, is that the red line in this chart – um, one of these drivers of net liquidity is going to go from what had been at the time 550 billion to 700 billion by year end. Now it's at 525 billion, so it's got to grow the Treasury general account balance. Uh, by 175 billion by year end, that's a big issue in the context of that's a addi- that's an additional headwind from a net liquidity perspective because again, uh, increases in this balance drain reserves from the banking sector from the broader system, and so um, I think what we're seeing on the tape as it relates to crypto is it feels like it's idiosyncratic and it, and it it is partially idiosyncratic, but again, these things don't happen in the vacuum. Net liquidity, the net liquidity function is as bad as I've seen it in my career, at least heading over the next couple of months. And so it's going to be very difficult for people to lever up and buy the dip in Bitcoin and, and other assets, quite frankly.
1: There is, it's like we like pre scripted this. Um, <laughs> I love it. Well, this is now, my day job man i do this all day well <laughs> pre-scripting things with me no it's not uh so um so here's what i'll say um to to all that i i love your approach uh especially you know with regards to analyzing bitcoin price action not you know not as an idiosyncratic thing but looking at kind of a bigger picture thing looking at net, net liquidity looking at the TJ, the Tre- treasury general account and you know these other factors which very much um certainly you know uh, impact price action uh directly or indirectly um let me just actually throw up a you know a, a series of charts of my own brian if you just pull up um these uh i just have like just four, four charts this is if you're wondering why if you're still wondering why you know nasdaq had a down day yesterday and then today so this is just basically a simple chart this is bitcoin futures and this is nasdaq futures in the last two days okay so um my point with this, though, is that tradfi people, you need to watch crypto as much as crypto people need to watch tradfi macro markets, right? A like, thousand um, percent, yeah, Like, 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 because you always hear of, you know, like you know, just go to chart two, Brian. You know, like over the longer term, right? The chart of Bitcoin futures and, uh, and Nasdaq futures, right there. Most of the time, uh, you know, Bitcoin is led by equities and you hear about this correlation with ne- the Nasdaq and all that. But it's not always the case that that Bitcoin is led by the Nasdaq or, you know, like the U.S. indices. You know, notice the enormous off the chart record high BTC futures volumes that traded yesterday uh, on that chart. Um, that is a day that Bitcoin was driving the Nasdaq. Um, And so you can't, you know, a day like yesterday, you can't necessarily look at the U.S. uh, US, uh, Treasury, you know, yield price action uh, to to determine what's happening today with the NASDAQ. You'd have have to be paying attention to what's happening uh, in the cryptos here. Uh, Chart three, going back to the last two days, then what else might be moving possibly both BTC and equities, i.e. risk assets, or at least moving in line with them? This is one of many I'm pulling up the currency markets, notably the Chinese Yuan, which like any cross asset comparison, this is not like a always and forever, like, you know, factor for like risk price, uh, price action drivers. um, And nor is it like always going to be static to the same degree of of relevance all the time. Drivers are always flexibly interchangeable with relevance. um, But notice that this is also happening in the background. Um, because there's a lot of developments happening out of China, we'll get to China PPI, uh, PPI in a minute too, Darius. Um, and but then so so yeah, uh, just take a look at that chart and then the last chart. Um, you know, in terms of like relevance and and like kind of dipping in and out of relevance, dollar yuan has been a or if not the major risk asset downside driver as of late. Um, in my view, and, and like, you know, according to these charts, you know, really since August, as, as you can see here, right? And now, now, again, it's not always the case. As you can see, like, at the beginning of the year, it certainly didn't have any sort of relevance. And then it did, uh, you know, from March, and then it didn't, and now it currently does. And if you, so if you look at it on an intraday basis, tick for tick basis, and or longer term chart, like, these are all like factors that are that have nothing to do with the idiosyncrasies of FTX. Um, and Binance. um, And we need to keep that, uh, all all that in mind, because Bitcoin is probably the most global of asset classes maybe ever. Um, And so it's not just based on two people. Um, I think that kind of goes against their mantra.
3: We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision daily briefing.
2: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Um, well, let,
0: let me, uh, let me, I actually, uh, I t- go ahead. Oh, sorry. I said I tweeted this morning. No, um, no. the first thing I tweeted this morning, I said, you know, this, this drama is a is a great teaching moment um and not just for for investors in crypto i think we kind of uh experience stratify people kind of come off sometimes as talking down uh to to what tends to be a younger crypto investor and and, and i certainly don't intend to do that uh what we're really trying to do is help educate the audience and hey look I, you know i got 14 years of grinding my butt off every day in a chair and and learning a bunch of stuff and i want to explain you know i want to help um the my broader audience understand all the stuff that i've learned throughout my career and you know this is uh i think there are three important lessons that investors uh, should be learning, observing, and, and learning from this experience uh, with FTX and Binance. And, and the reality is, number one, you know this concept of decentralization in the crypto market is, is an illusion. And I don't mean that the protocol at the protocol level. I mean at the level that matters most to your damn wallet, which is the price of the dang freaking currency. You know it's, The protocols might be decentralized as all hell, but guess what? We're all dealing with the whims and actions in our portfolios or some portfolios Based on two guys' interactions who've been spatting and feuding with each other all year. So, you to riddle me this, you know, you, you don't see this kind of price action behavior in the broader US equity market, and certainly not in the fixed income markets um, in terms of centralization and having an impact like that. So, again, I want investors to be aware when it matter where it matters most is your damn wallet and your portfolio. The crypto market is, is more decentralized than even most traditional traffic markets. Number two, I've set this. How many times on this program I've said it with you, said it with Maggie, said it with Andreas, I've said it with Ash. I've said it every single time I've been on this show this year, or some version of this, which is when the macro fundamentals are bad, and we look at macro fundamentals through three specific lenses: where are we in the growth cycle, where are we in the inflation cycle, and how are those two things telling? What are those two things telling us about where we're headed in the net liquidity cycle, which I would argue is is, is a sacrosanct to, to to all those things. Now, when macro is bad micro doesn't matter like micro might matter and make the macro worse like it is today over the last 24 to 48 hours in the in the crypto market but it's this this stuff does not happen in a vacuum if we were in the same bullish goldilocks reflation type state that we were in from 2020 to 2021 when we had this massive bull run in crypto where a lot of folks were making money hand over fist not really understanding the risk they were taking then you, you, you can make your stories up about micro and, you know, go far into the future with your projects and protocols, et cetera, et cetera. But when the macro is bad, it's all about net liquidity. It's all about the dollar. It's all about the Fed. It's all about all the stuff that crypto people pride themselves in not having to deal with, but unfortunately are being forced to. And then lastly, you know, and, you know I get a lot of pushback on this, but until, until the, it stops being true, I'm going to keep saying it, which is U.S. dollar net liquidity trumps all particularly in these sort of bear markets, as long as the U.S. dollar remains a reserve currency. Now, we can argue to the cows come home about whether or not the U.S. dollar should be the U.S. reserve currency, or we can pontificate whether or not or when the U.S. dollar is no longer going to be the reserve currency. I happen to have a variant perception on that. Uh, I think we're probably never going to lose that status because we have a lot of guns and a lot of tanks and a lot of nuclear warheads that are designed to make sure that we don't lose our exorbitant privilege. But you know, that's a different uh, that's a different view. If uh, if you think um, you know, some some kids with uh, some funky hair are going to sit at a computer all day and usurp uh, the U.S. military, I, I just think that's a that's a misguided <laughs> view. <laughs> anyway, sorry.
1: Um. Uh, yeah. I. I yeah, totally agree. Um. Especially about the you know the kids with the with the funky hair part. Um. <laughs> but um. L- let me let me ask you because you know uh we are we are kind of you know running out of time and I want to just quickly touch on to this.
0: Ask as many questions as point as we need to because I, I think this is a very important day to to help yeah. investors manage risk.
1: Certainly, certainly so. Um, I do want to address first of all. We did come off midterm elections. Now, just keep in mind the midterm elections that took place yesterday. These are the votes are still being tallied up, so we don't have any final as of yet. Looks like the House is going to go uh, red to the Republicans. However, the Senate looks like it's kind of you know coming to a uh, down to a runoff, and it's a dead heat. Um, and that could potentially last for some time. Um, this, is, this is very, extremely familiar <laughs> to um, November of 2020. Um, but what do you, do you make anything of the, oh, and then, so basically, basically the point there is that if the Democrats, if they lose either chamber, right, of Congress, Republicans will be able to kind of, you know, block President Biden and his uh, sort of agenda, if you will, and his, you know, his proposals. Well, do, do you see anything there from a, maybe like a sector allocation basis or a potential broader asset allocation basis given this like not red wave blowout um and or sort of near-term uncertainty still that's gonna be prolonged for a little bit yeah great questions man so i'll answer that's that CLA, two ways whatever it may be yeah
0: yeah great question so i answer that two ways um so there's uh the qualitative aspect of this discussion then there's the quantitative aspect i think the qualitative aspect's a, a little bit loose so i'll start with the qu- quantitative um uh, you know we've back tested midterm elections and by the way I've been back testing things for many years and building models for many years. There's few things that have as high as a hit rate as midterm elections as anything I've ever seen. I mean, with data going all the way back to 1946, you know, I think there's been 19 midterm elections since then, um, and not inclusive of this most recent one. There is a 98% chance you're making money three months later, nine, like, a, like a 95% or 89% chance three months later, 95% chance six months later, and then like an 89% chance. Twelve months later, it's like it's one of the highest hit rates. I mean, most things, if you're building a model um, in terms of trying to generate trading signals, are somewhere between forty percent and sixty percent. I mean, can you, can
1: you can you define what hit rate means? What do you mean by by hit rate? The the stock market is up from 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 the date of the midterm election,
0: and it's you and it's, and like the medium returns are actually quite quite uh, robust. Like it's it's as it's as bullish as anything as I've seen. It's 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 as bullish to the stock market as QE is. Now the problem is. Is when you actually look at those back tests from a conditional standpoint, i.e., which are the midterm elections where I don't know, Fed hiking interest rates or, you know, in the middle of a bear market, the back test goes to, to poop. It, it doesn't, it's not a it's not a signal. And so you have to sort of weigh the the broader sort of um, the base scenario, the base case a data set. With the broad, with the, the realization that hey we're still in a bear market, um, Fed is still tightening liquidity, and and that back test from a conditional probability perspective is actually is actually quite moot. It doesn't mean really doesn't mean anything for the stock market. So I think we're learning that, and I think this sort of lack of red wave, this lack of massive move uh, to the Republican side, is sort of taking some of that gusto and that that opium associated with the post midterm election you know seasonality rally out of the system. Um, and, and it was always going to be an uphill battle in the context of all the net liquidity dynamics that we were highlighting earlier. Um, but now that uphill battle just got a lot worse because, again, I think the worst from a qualitative standpoint, the worst possible dynamic is murky, right? If you get a red wave, now Biden has to bend the knee to the some aspects of the Republican agenda. You might have seen some positive stuff on taxes, might have seen some positive stuff on uh, energy production, et cetera. Some things might have come out of that. But if it's murky, then they're just going to be a lot more gridlock, and everyone says gridlock is fine, but gridlock's not fine when you're marching down a path to recession and inflation is still at six, seven, eight percent. No, by the way, that's probably something we should touch on too ahead of uh, the yep. Q and A.
1: Yep, yep, indeed. Um, let me just uh, remind people. Yeah, do uh, we do we want to be gridlocked
0: with low growth and high inflation? Well, no, you want policies well, to fix it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> like let let, let let me let me just remind everyone that uh, in the depths of the financial crisis in 2008 in October um there was a bill for tarp to what that was sent to congress that they voted down in the middle of markets melting down and then they further melted down and they ran back and they passed that bill eventually so you know just if you're going to do that anyway Why not just, like, save hundreds of billions of dollars of, you know, if not more than that, of uh, asset value shedding, right? Uh, So you're applying
0: uh, uh, the wrong framework uh, to uh, evaluating uh, politicians. Politicians don't do the right thing. They do whatever gets them votes. And so at the time, it didn't get them votes until they realized that this is actually bad for the market. And they said, no, no, wait, we need to get on board.
1: It's, it's very important to distinguish between because that's an, a narrative that's overused that like uh, divided Congress is good, for it's good like, positive for risk assets. In what context? If you're talking about like, a, you know, like when things are fine uh, economically, then that may or may not be true. But like as Darius is saying, if you're if you're looking at a Fed hiking into a recession, that's a very different dynamic of a divided congress um because fiscal policy is what's going to really be needed uh in order to support that and a deadlock congress is not going to really help that uh let me ask you uh about um the cpi uh that were on the cusp of darius because you're the man for that Uh, i will note that china cpi um reading came out uh earlier today in asia or yesterday in asia um, with a deflation for the first time in, in two years um, in negative reading. So what do you make of that reading as it relates to maybe China itself and this kind of consensus narrative of like a reopen in the first half of 23? Um, and can we extrapolate anything from this the negative China PPI reading as it relates to developed economies, potentially like, you know, near term, if not tomorrow's uh, uh, CPI reading? Absolutely not. No, no China's uh, inflation has been divergent.
0: From, uh, from U.S. and developed market inflation for about 18 months now. So uh, they've been on their own cycle, partially because of zero COVID, partially because they're, in our opinion, uh, at least according to our models, is, are very clearly stuck in what is the most obvious classic liquidity trap that that we've probably seen since Japan in the 1990s. I mean if you look at if you sort of look at all the things that would suggest an economy is in a liquidity trap, which is inability to, to, to grow above trend or the, the underlying mean of growth is, is lower, the underlying mean of, of inflation is lower, declining working age population uh, decline or, you know per- permanent asset impairment from prior bubble peaks, all these different things down declining real estate prices, like they basically like check, 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 check in terms of liquidity uh, uh, um, in terms of classic liquidity trap. So that's our main structural thesis on China. Um, so it's not uh, it's not appropriate to extrapolate some of those dynamics to the U.S. economy that is quote unquote booming at least according to our analysis from a coincident to lagging like indicator perspective we we are not experiencing those kinds of dynamics uh, just a few charts before we uh, turn it over to a few questions I know we're running late on time here uh, we'll go quickly here so Brian throw up that core CPI chart just to get a little preview of the flare of how we, how investors should be contextualizing the data into the uh into tomorrow's uh, prints and and, and, for, and future inflation prints um what we show here in core CPI are you know the 3-month annualized rates of change uh for the most recent print in the blue bar the prior month in the uh in the gray bar and then the uh 2015 2019 the pre-covid trend in the, in the in the light blue bars and uh we're showing this on a relative basis to the fed funds rate you know, where is inflation relative to the Fed funds rate? Because, again, uh, we know that historically speaking, uh, in order for these inflationary episodes to sort of, quote, unquote, get defeated by policymakers, we've historically had to see realized Fed funds over realized inflation. And so uh, I don't think the, the, this, this, this Federal Reserve with you know the influences of Lyle Brainerd and Chuck Evans and Neil Cash curry who's a, who's, a, who's, a, who's a dove in hawk's clothing right now. Um, you know, I don't think their influence as we go further towards in this business cycle towards towards a recession are going to allow Chair Powell to be as hawkish as he was last week or um, last Wednesday. And so, it's our belief that the three-month annualized rates of change in these indicators is the real real juice is where the action is. You can't wait for the year-over-year indicators to get to appropriate levels because the Fed is likely to have pivoted uh, before that. Um, And so when you look at these uh, statistics, I think I'd call out uh, the statistic on the right of this chart, core CPI, uh, services CPI, less rent of shelter. Um, That number is is starting to come down, uh, but it's still at 6.7%. On a three-month annualized basis, which is, by the way, what Powell told us to, to how Pal told us to look at the data um, after we, I think, told him, because allegedly he he watches Twitter through a private account, so um, I'm guessing that's one of the many things that uh, we are providing thought leadership on. But uh, anyway, uh, core services inflation, less rent of shelter, excluding this whole nonsensical debate about uh, owner's equivalent rent, is still at 6.7%. That number is way out of line with anything that is consistent with 2% inflation over the long run mean. And if you throw up the second chart, Brian, uh, where we show underlying inflation, some of these more uh, sort of super core metrics, whether you think about trim mean CPI, median CPI, sticky CPI, uh, et cetera. Um, those measures at trim mean and median CPI, sticky CPI, at seven to eight and a half percent over on a month-over-month annualized rate of change basis, are telling you that the inflation problem from a core perspective here in the United States is getting worse. Now, you know, we published a 160-page slide deck yesterday uh, that explains why all these problems are getting worse and how they're likely to continue at least over the medium term. And so, we would expect uh, an upside surprise on the core aspect of the discussion uh, um, in next month's print. And we think the balance of risk to the uh, to, to 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 core inflation is actually skewed to the upside, uh, at least over the next one to two quarters, uh, as a function of again all that research we, we pumped out. So, um, you know, I just wanted to kind of uh, hit on those things before we turn it over to some questions because I think that might uh, influence sure. the queue.
1: Um, yeah, we're actually we're actually running over as it is because there's so much to pack in today. I just wanted to just to be clear. So your so consensus right now, I believe on Encore on is at six at six and a half percent. And then uh, headlines at 7.9%, which is a decline um, for uh, f- from expectations. Um, what what's your and, and then and so you're you're saying that the core inflation expectations are too low. Uh, what what about your headline expectations um, relative to uh, consensus?
0: Uh, it's, it's, who cares? <laughs> Until energy what's starts.
1: Through, one, it's not
0: it's not where the action is. We, it's the reason right. we are focusing on core because the Fed is right. focusing on core. Our
2: right, entire exactly.
1: process
0: and core, is designed and core specifically
1: core core services.
0: Well, it's yeah, it's it's, it's designed yeah. to front run the Fed because they're right. primarily the entity that most responsible for big fluctuations in net liquidity. I mean, we make changes as investors in terms of reverse repo facility, and obviously the Treasury General Account, the Treasury makes a lot of uh, has a, a decent amount of influence as well. But obviously, clearly, the Fed and its signaling and interest rates, et cetera, et cetera, uh, kind of has its uh, the biggest thumbprint on that on that on that on that model. So um, that's why we're focusing on these things because again, we're trying to put ourselves in a position to be informed by the data. To make appropriate changes in our portfolio that will sort of be rewarded by changes that the Fed and other agencies
3: subsequently make. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
2: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Indeed. Um so
1: mm-hmm. That's a yeah. That's a, that's a perfect way to kind of sum things up. Um, look, Darius, I wish we had time for questions. Um, but we you gotta get a couple. We're, we're, Come on, we, we, we we're we going we're going over. Yeah, uh, you actually uh, um you actually did kind of answer a lot of them as they were kind of coming in. Uh, so I don't know if you know you have this like telepathy or something. Um, but in terms of uh, I mean a lot of it's just you know on on Bitcoin getting hammered and and so what kind of you know potential price action Do you see going forward and and so on and so forth um i would say that personally i would say that you would need to uh seriously look at you know the i, I mean it's very very opaque but you need to kind of figure out how much leverage there is and you need to, the the only way to do that or the closest way to do that uh, or one way to do that is to look at just listed derivatives because those are at least listed um but um but yeah Let's, so, so can I-
0: can I can yeah. I take a step back? Um, um, so it, I would argue, I would take it a step further and say it's not just about the stock of leverage because if you think about it, leverage is actually the good thing. When you, it makes the market go up, it's the it's the the, the the raising of of margin, the margin calls associated with leverage, the price of attaining leverage, the cost of capital changing at the margin that forces investors to reduce leverage is the right. issue. You know, so uh, that's yeah. that's what you should be focused on
1: exactly that's what I meant by by leverage I meant I meant you know leverage as as a whole as an entity if you will um and the behavior of leverage as with that very much includes deleveraging and you know the the absence over the removing of um and, and how much was was kind of there in, in the first place and all and all again a lot of this is 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 very kind of black box too um Look, Darius, uh, this has been uh, a lot of information in a very short amount of time. Uh, thank you for staying over. Um, I just wanted to just give some takeaways here because, you know, with regards of what's happening with like FTX and Binance and all that, headlines developments, yeah, they're very important Um, and they can and will and have been certainly moving, you know, risk assets for um, the last two days or so. Um, but with that said, we do need to keep an eye on things like net liquidity, you know, um, and the actions of not just the Fed, um, but the U.S. Treasury Department, you know, we have to watch things like, the, you know, the TGA, the the, the Treasury General account. Um, and with regards to, you know, the midterm elections, you know, they've backcasted tested uh, to have a very high, you know, positive equity market response. But again, we need to be in the context of and aware of the, the broader macro backdrop that we are in. Um, and gridlock is not necessarily this sort of, you know, automatic good for markets risk on sort of uh, backdrop either. Uh, in and of itself. Uh, in other words, as Darius said, these things do not happen in a vacuum. Okay, when the macro is bad, the micro doesn't matter. Um, in the same way, when the macro is bad or good or whatever it is, uh, like one specific idiosyncratic event or something as big as that may be um, in the crypto universe or in the political universe of elections or whatever it is, that doesn't matter um, because there is a much bigger force an umbrella overhead uh, that will kind of determine um, and make those, those other smaller, relatively smaller things sort of more irrelevant. I don't know if that's kind of a, uh, a, a sum up uh, more or less of what you're um, kind of shared with us today.
0: Yeah. Can I, can I end with like a quick public service announcement Cause I think this is a fantastic is. opportunity to help, Teach investors, you know, how to better think about managing risk. Again, I don't say that with a condescending, you know, air, air of a, someone who's nailed financial markets and has everything figured out, uh, you know. But we do, you know, we think we have a lot of stuff figured out, and we can be, you know, valuable to a broad audience. And so, you know, I actually had a conversation with uh, one of our uh, new subscribers last night about uh, stop losses, and you know, kind of how we I think about that stop losses. I
1: loved it. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. It's it's a real institutional framework about thinking about risk management. And so, you know. I think stop losses can be valuable for, for sort of retail investors, particularly if you're not sitting at your desk for, you know, 14, 15, 16 hours a day like I am. You know, I don't, you know, I'm aware of what the price action is. But if you have a day job and you don't, stop losses can be valuable in helping you manage risk. But here's why, you know, we don't necessarily believe in stop losses in here. And we'll actually use a live example of a trade that went wrong for us today in terms of how we think about that. So uh, we bought the dip in Bitcoin yesterday. Um, we've been playing the year with the lead. We're actually up. Uh, Year to date, or you know, uh, and so we have an opportunity to provide liquidity um, heading into for some of these instances in in the market, and so we took advantage of that opportunity. Uh, We had a specific set of exit criteria associated with what would make us get out of the trade, not a stop loss. Hey, if it goes down eight to ten percent, let's just get out of the trade. The exit criteria was if we saw another major candle down, then that probably means that there's going to be more trouble, and obviously, we got that second major candle down, and then subsequently. To that second major candle down, we obviously getting headlines that are hitting the tape and causing more accelerated selling to the downside. And so what we're thinking about stop losses, it's not this sort of you know single factor price momentum based approach. We have a litany of models at 42 macro that help us manage risk, probable ranges, crowding, et cetera, et cetera. We won't go into all the tools, but what we're trying to do with those models is you know expand what a stop loss is, which is alert and then immediate execution of a trade, and expand the alert side of that situation and say, hey. We don't just want to be anchored to single-factor price momentum. There could be other qualitative and quantitative aspects. The quantitative aspect was if we're going to do another major candle down. Historically, that's been a leading indicator for, for, for accelerated declines in this asset class. And then qualitative, hey, look, you know, we probably got one to two days at most to pick up some points here because, again, we think there's probably going to be an upside surprise in CPI Thursday. So our window of time to generate profits in this particular trade is actually quite compressed. If we don't generate the profits in this window of time – then we got to get out. And so it's, it's not just understanding, hey, well, if the thing went down, I don't know, 8%, let's just get out. It's understanding the quantitative signals, marrying those with the qualitative signals, and using that to manage risk appropriately. Always have a set of exit criteria to get out of a trade before you put it on. And when those exit criteria are met, get out of the trade. You will save yourself a lot of money over the market cycles.
1: Such a such a key point. Before you put a trade on, know how you're going to exit it, or what no, why
0: you're going to exit it,
1: and why you're going to exit it, and potentially how you're going to exit it. Um, you know, and, and all that. Stop loss for me, actually, per- personally, they help me um because you know, uh, like for me, if I'm trading futures specifically, I don't want a margin call, so I don't care what the like I'm going to get a margin call because. If the broker doesn't care why this price is moving against me, then I don't care either. <laughs> and so, therefore, I, you know. But again, it's all within context, too, right? Um, has to be volatility adjusted. And I, uh, you just that that stop loss thing that you did, I think t- it's on your Twitter. I, th- I suggest everyone take a look at it for everyone who is very sort of um uh kind of glued to using stop losses and kind of maybe rethink using uh, how I do, go about using stop losses.
0: It's not um, that again. And- by the way, we're both using stop losses. It's just yeah, that we're how- beefing up the alert side of the the discussion. Stop right, losses are right. price, price factors, alert, immediate execution. Right. Our, right. our stop losses are we could have an alert, quantitative alert from a variety of different models. And sure. then we decide based on the near-term calendar calendars like CPI tomorrow whether mm-hmm. we want to execute that alert signal now or we execute that in a few days. And our decision today was to alert it now earlier this afternoon before mm-hmm. this tape, the news hit on, the, on at 4 o'clock. So I'm glad we got out because that would have been a lot more painful.
1: Indeed. Indeed. Look, uh, Darius, you're not going on forever, um, but um, we are running over here. So uh, to everyone out there, thanks for watching uh, the Real Vision Daily Briefing uh, with uh, Darius Dale and I. I will be back tomorrow with Michael Howell. And uh, till then, I uh, wish you well. Keep your eyes on the tape and, um, you know, make sure that you take a look at Darius's Twitter for what we were talking about regarding stop losses and all that, too. Okay, thanks. Thank
0: thank you, Weston. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We appreciate y'all.